Welcome to the Graduate Institute In Conversation with podcast series. I'm Lena Menger, Outreach Officer at the Graduate Institute. In this series, we ask renowned expert and thought leaders to address pressing global issues with a Graduate Institute faculty member. This episode features a discussion between Lord Mark Mullock Brown, former Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations, and co chair of the International Crisis Group, and Professor Keith Krauser, Director of the Center on Conflict, Development and Peacebuilding at the Graduate Institute Geneva. The COVID 19 pandemic has led to the escalation of conflicts in some part of the world and led to severe fiscal impacts on aid budgets. Lord Malakbran hopes, however, that this crisis may trigger a new international engagement and recognition that these public goods issues like pandemics or climate change cannot be only dealt with at the national level and require real international partnerships and multilateral collaboration. Okay, well, thank you for joining us today. I know that we're going to speak about a wide range of things associated with some of the contemporary conflict dynamics that have unfolded since COVID-19, but I thought I might start by asking uh, your assessment of uh, Secretary General Guterres' early call in, in March of this year for a, a global COVID ceasefire and, and repeated references that he's made to that subsequently. Have we seen any such evidence of, of positive developments from uh, the COVID pandemic? Well, Keith, I think it was a very well-intentioned call, uh, but it's actually been surprisingly ineffectual. Uh, the year of COVID has actually been the year of escalating conflicts of the kind that the UN engages itself in. So, you know, far from seeing a wide adoption of a ceasefire, we've uh, seen, you know, intensity in some ways of conflicts in, in Yemen, for example, even in Afghanistan. And we've seen new conflicts in Nagorno-Karabakh and, and Ethiopia. And, you know, it was quite clear when the call was first made that combatants looked at it very much from their own perspective. If they had the upper hand or, indeed, if they felt they were on the losing end, they tended to support the Secretary General's call, uh, whereas you know, if they still felt they had unfinished business on the battlefield and could improve their position, they ignored it. So, you know, it's a classic problem that, you know, in a politically correct Security Council, they finally adopted this resolution in the middle of the year in July. General Assembly supported it. But, you know, on the field, on the and particularly on the battleground, uh, the call appears to have had sadly little effect. If we look at uh, dynamics on the ground, do you think that COVID uh, ha has had any specific impact, uh, for example, on uh, facilitating the ability of, of armed groups to exercise control over their territories? I know there were some reports where armed groups imposed uh, uh, curfews and quarantines, um, or was it really just a, a separate phenomenon that took the world's attention away from, uh, from any of the conflicts on the ground? Well, you know, strangely, there have not been this sort of super spreader COVID events that one might have anticipated either from conflicts or, say, from refugee camps uh, where the victims of conflicts are harbored. Uh, and, and more generally, of course, you know, developing countries have in many cases not had the same 
levels of infection or death rates as some northern countries and lots of explanations for that around mean age, etc. It tends to be an older people's uh, disease, etc. And, you know, because effective treatment has not been available, nor has it been used as a kind of a weapon of war, you've not been able to sort of deny people a vaccine because there isn't one. Uh, and so in, 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 in that sense, it's had less impact than you might have thought. I mean, there have been uh, around peace negotiations, uh, particularly those held in Geneva, you know, a, a lot of alarm at certain points about whether delegations are going to bring it in with them and then the other delegations will take it back out to their countries after a negotiation. So at the margins, it, it has had some deadening effect on the uh, momentum of peace negotiations with you know, also UN envoys and others being very restricted in their ability to travel to conflict areas. I, I certainly know that any of the mediators that I've had contacts with would say that the absence of face-to-face discussions, uh, especially in, in the field, is really a, a critical element, uh, a disabler, if you will, of, of any mediation efforts. Um, I don't know if we have any specific uh, examples or illustrations of that uh, to work with either in, in Yemen or elsewhere. Um, I know that peace talks have continued on the Afghan front, but uh, that's also a long-standing challenge that doesn't necessarily have had much uh, ebb and flow related to COVID. Well, Keith, I mean, I think, look, that's a very thoughtful question. And I think, you know, in, in, in all honesty, today's UN has, is very bad at the moment at the big sort of macro resolution of conflicts. It's much better at the localized, on-the-ground uh, short, you know, mediation of the local aspects of conflict, trying to get some humanitarian corridors in place, uh, trying to rescue certain towns or communities from active uh, fighting, etc. And, you know, this is a measure of how the world is. The Security Council is sadly dysfunctional and broken, but the role of UN envoys, uh, either special representatives of Secretary General or resident coordinators in other situations, you know, is where the individuals involved are ambitious and activist and imaginative, still critical. And they are, as you rightly say, highly constrained from that sort of local mediation and, 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 and local conflict mitigation, which has become the more effective part of the UN's role in recent years. Now, of course, uh, the UN mediation and high-level politics of conflict is only one dimension, but I think uh, it's worth underlining and maybe exploring a little bit what role humanitarian actors have managed or not managed to play in this uh, crisis. The World Food Program, of course, received the Nobel uh, Peace Prize. And one of the things that they underline repeatedly is that conflict is one of the main drivers of, of food insecurity and, and hunger crises, and that, that a, a huge proportion, two-thirds of their assistance, goes to, to people who are in conflict zones. So I wonder if perhaps there's a, at least some bright spots in this uh, last 12 months or last 10 months of dealing with COVID. Well, look, I mean, I, I think, you know, in a way, we, we'll have a better answer to that a year from now, because, you know, we first, even before COVID, had a long-term trend where it was clear that the world's very poor would be increasingly conflict concentrated in conflict countries or very fragile 
countries, and that has been accelerated by COVID. And, you know, we're now going to have the additional challenge as, as the levels of impoverishment are, are accelerated by COVID and reverse because, you know, we've been going through a period when the amount of absolute poverty in the world was sharply declining. And the World Bank estimates that I think the latest estimate is something like 113 million people will be thrown back behind the absolute $1.90 a day poverty line this year. But, you know, We've now got the special issue of, of of whether COVID relief can be delivered to those who are most vulnerable. And as I say, we've not seen the, the, the sort of straightforward public health outbreaks that we might have feared, or at least not on the scale we might have feared. But, you know, for example, while there is a big international initiative, COVAX, for 2 billion uh, vaccine uh, shots to be available to poorer countries as well as shots for middle-income countries. You know, in truth, this just deals with 20% across those countries. And those are, you know, and it's targeted towards older people and health workers. So, you know, in almost every country, refugees, for example, who have no local political representation and voice, always end up at the very bottom of the wish list of groups to be provided for. And, you know, in war zones, it's even harder to run vaccination campaigns, etc. And, you know, we, we've seen in areas of political, of weak political institutions and distrust of those institutions, say Pakistan or northern Nigeria, huge historic difficulties with vaccination campaigns. So I think our humanitarian friends are going to really have their work cut out for them in 2021 to deliver effective health support, as well as food aid and everything else, which, you know, weakening populations with higher levels of poverty are going to need. And they're going to have to do that in a context of sharply tightening ODA budgets. I know that that's a, a specific concern of yours. And, and of course, the British government has just announced a major cut from 07 to 0.5%, which represents, I guess, almost a one-third cut in, in its ODA. This is a public debate and dispute, but I imagine that other countries will quietly follow down this path. And what kind of long-term impact or, or even short-term impact do you think that will have on specifically on, on conflict dynamics uh, beyond just uh, uh, dealing with uh, sustainable uh, development? Well, I think it is very worrying. I mean, I think one might hope that other countries will just use uh, the shrinkage of their overall GDP to maintain the proportion, but reset the number a bit to take account of a smaller uh, GDP, you know, so that 0.7 of a smaller GDP is a smaller number than 0.7 of today's GDP. And, you know, second, Britain was out ahead of most countries. 0.7 was a stretch target, which only a handful of countries meet. But, you know, I fear that what we are seeing here in Britain may get replicated elsewhere with these more brutal cuts. And when I see the politics here in Britain, where, you know, people like myself and, you know, who are sort of often dismissed as a kind of liberal establishment elite, all come racing out to condemn this, you know, I can see the government actually relishing it because for its own domestic base, it is able to sort of show that they're causing pain to establishment interests, to liberal elites in London or 
And, and you know, the fact we've had all our former prime ministers and our Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Church of England here, all come out to condemn it is more grist to the political mill of showing their poorer voters, who are a kind of almost sort of Trump-like constituency in the British system of, of, of people who've really been hit hard by globalization, showing them that they're going to spread the pain of the cost of COVID, economic cost of COVID equally. And so at the same time that public sector wages are being restrained, taxes are likely to be increased. This is a kind of very effective, iconic gesture to their particular political coalition. And, you know, that could get repeated in other countries. So I think all of us who care about development assistance and recognize that it's an investment, not in developing countries' own security alone, but in the security we all depend upon, because if there's COVID anywhere, if there's COVID in Somalia or uh, COVID in Pakistan, you know, then it remains a threat to all of us. And unless we can, you know, make that case for the sort of mutual security of all of us by this kind of investment, you know, I think, I, I think where the world is on a very bad and dangerous, slippery slope. So, and, and parenthetically, of course, one of the origins of global public health cooperation was uh, a desire to, to deal with uh, epidemics and with con- contagious and infectious diseases that crossed borders and the recognition that this had to be done collaboratively because national solutions didn't work. But I, I have to say that's not exactly the point we seem to be at right now, uh, certainly not with international responses. And I wonder if the, the inward turn of, of politics and political attention, not, not just in the UK, but uh, elsewhere, is, uh, is going to have some medium or even long-term impacts on the multilateral system. And I'm thinking here in particular of the, the Trump administration in the United States and uh, its complete dismissal, even pre-COVID, of any kind of multilateral uh, cooperation and deep suspicion of organizations such as the WHO. Well, you know, of course, although Donald Trump has lost the election, 73 million people voted for him. And you know, in that sense, this is going to remain a, you know, a constituency and an opposition to the new Biden administration, which evidently will have a kind of curbing effect on its natural multilateral instincts. And so, you know, you've got to weigh that against the fact that the early appointments are real internationalists, John Kerry with this climate brief, Tony Blinken as Secretary of State, both of them fluent French speakers who spent significant parts of their childhoods in France. Jake Sullivan, who's a fellow trustee of mine at the International Crisis Group, who's now the new National Security Advisor. These are, you know, you know, really impressive internationalists, as is President-elect Biden himself. But, you know, they're going to be contending with this very divided domestic politics back home, where a majority of Republican voters assert that they uh, don't even accept that Biden won the election uh, honestly. And, you know, internationally, the trouble is that, you know, a pandemic brings out the worst in every country. You know, everybody races to meet that sort of fundamental rationale of government, the security of their own citizens. And so, you know, the race to, to get the best command of vaccine doses, et cetera, et cetera, militates against the sort of international collaboration that the problem really needs uh, for address. Now, I think 
you know, there is a chance, which is uh, the Brits actually chair the G7 this year. Uh, and I think Boris Johnson, despite his cut in ODA, you know, has made a big pledge towards this COVAX vaccine fund and I think intends to use the chairmanship of the G7 to push an international, you know, health security uh, agenda as the number one item. Uh, and, you know, that really may give opportunity while the pandemic is still raging to kind of generate the political will with Biden now in office to get a much more ambitious international health agenda locked in. Because as you say, I mean, pandemic illnesses, you know, have been a regular feature of both our societies historically, but also very recently. I mean, my years in the UN were the years of HIV, but also SARS, and then latterly Ebola. And, you know, so there is, you know, a, a massive system to be put in place. And, and also, I think the other thing just to say is, you know, ironically, there's an awful lot of lesson learning between different healthcare systems. You know, you know, you take one of the world's least successful responses, the United States, I think probably now up to about 80 deaths per 100,000. I haven't checked the figures exactly lately. Or you take Vietnam, a country with a fractional spending per capita in terms of health compared to the US, but which has something, you know, has less than uh, one death per 100,000 in its case. So these very differentiated outcomes, which you know, do relate to not just the social discipline around lockdown once the pandemic bites, but have also to do with the model of healthcare delivery with developing countries front foot forward sort of public health preventative strategies, the strong presence in the community to allow local versions of track and trace. You know, all this has actually paid off compared to the highly expensive, centralized, hospital-centric systems uh, that so much of the West has. So building global health security is not just investing more in developing countries, a critical part of it, though that is. It's also learning the lessons of how the West can build more decentralized, community-based health systems that have greater resilience for crises like this. No, I think the, the lesson of, quote, appropriate technologies for uh, dealing with public health crises is a very important one. Um, I, I do hope that uh, some of it gets fed back into northern healthcare systems, but I'm not entirely sure that, that uh, large-scale uh, medical lobbies and pharmaceutical industries are going to go in that direction. Um, but it's an interesting insight that, that, of course, many of the states at the top of the league tables for uh, the, the horrific impacts of COVID are, are of course, uh, what we think of as, as developed or, or states in, in the global West, OECD, or Latin America. And that's a, a puzzle that's going to take some time to unpack. Um, I want to turn uh, or return a little bit to the some of the broader geopolitical consequences of this, because you, you did refer to the, the internationalists in the Biden administration and uh, a little bit of a, a deja vu all over again, uh, to quote Yogi Berry, of that uh, administration. To, to what extent, though, can they sort of move the dial a little bit or move the needle on the dial a little bit for re-engagement in some of the really important conflict hotspots that 
essentially were neglected to certainly for the last 12 months, but, but also beyond that with um, Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, uh, and then of course, more recent conflicts in Azerbaijan, Armenia, and, and now Ethiopia. Well, you're right. I mean, I think there is a sort of sentimental sort of restoration uh, element to, to, to this new team, uh, a risk that they get consumed by re- trying to restore the Pax Americana pre-Trump. And, you know, in many ways, you know, Trump has done lasting and enduring damage to America's standing in the world, which is going to be difficult to flip in anything but a two-term presidency, because I think, you know, an awful lot of America's friends and critics uh, will look at this administration and doubt its word, not because of a lack of faith in the individuals who deliver commitments, but because of a doubt about its political durability. You know, will Trump or Trumpism be back in 2024? And for example, if you were an Iranian nuclear negotiator, will you enter back into a Iran nuclear deal with the US, which already Biden has indicated would have, you know, more burdens to it to the Iranian side than the original deal did, if you worry that in four years' time it's going to be torn up again? Or would you follow the US down the road to, you know, ever more ambitious climate targets, as I think Senator Kerry will try to champion internationally, if you wonder that a Trumpist might be back in 2024 and will again reverse the US position on this. Now, if you take that to the conflicts, Keith, that you mentioned, you know, again, I think there's going to be doubt about America's word. You know, uh, already Trump, who did secure a breakdown in Afghanistan, and, you know, the two sides are sitting at the table, but, you know, Trump has threatened a large troop withdrawal by the end of his term, you know, ahead of what was called for and has committed to a full withdrawal by April of next year, I think it is. You know, how, how, you know, if a new administration says not so quickly, you know, we want to keep pressure on the Taliban to really meet the conditions of the deal so we can't pull out that precipitately, will the Taliban just choose to sit and wait them out, knowing that 2022 and then 2024, the next two uh, swings of the American election system may deliver even more opposition to you know, a longer term commitment, um, you know, particularly because America is clearly tired of these overseas commitments or in situations where American troops are not deployed, but American diplomatic pre- presence is so critical, the Gorno-Karabakh or Ethiopia, for example. Again, there will be questions about the consistency of, of uh, the America's word in these situations. And that's really worrying because I would argue that a lot of these conflicts which have flared up, you know, actually were rooted either in a feeling that America had taken its eye off the ball and wasn't engaged in the world anymore. And that has allowed increasingly bad behavior by all sorts of leaders in all sorts of places around the world. And I think in some ways, the timing, I suspect, of both Nagorno-Karabakh of the Azeri uh, move against Armenia, which has been very successful from the Azeri point of view, or even the move in Ethiopia took advantage of that particular hiatus, which is an American transition, an election and transition. And, you know, when America is distracted and not engaged, 
it still goes much wider than the US alone because you know US implicit backing for example as a P5 member to UN peacemaking has always been a critical critical sort of anchor support uh, to that and you know I think with that gone or, or in the at least in recent history gone you know it, it's contributed to the disappointing track record of not just US peacemaking, but UN peacemaking as well. And you know the other P5 members can't really make up for that. China is incredibly active in sort of economic diplomacy, if you like, but is still reticent uh, to take on the mantle of this sort of political diplomacy leadership, particularly where its own interests are not very directly involved. You know, France probably and Russia are the two most active members of the Security Council on peacemaking. With very mixed success, Russia, frankly, doesn't take much notice of the Security Council and you know, operates in its own way uh, and according to its own interests. Uh, the French are keener to leverage in uh, UN and Security Council backing to its initiatives, but it too can be quite capricious about when to go with the UN and when not. For example, on Libya, it, it's, it's not been on the right side of that argument at significant periods of time. So, you know, we've got not just a disengaged U.S., but a very weakened U.N. as well, reflecting that uh, weak America. I, I think that's a, a, a very bleak and somewhat sobering diagnosis. The one P5 member you didn't mention would be the, the U.K., and of course, the ambitions for a global Britain surely must extend beyond signing trade deals, deals and, and have something to do with reasserting the UK's global role. Do you think there's any uh, scope for that, or is that merely bluster and, and hot air? Well, I mean, I do think around, if you like, the sort of health and climate issues, you will see Britain trying to extend a new kind of post-Europe uh, leadership or post-EU leadership. And so I mentioned that it's got the G7 leadership, which I think will be very much revolve around global health. And then at the end, of the end of the year, COP26 in Glasgow, where I think you will see you know, an attempt by the UK to actively lead on that and partly to use it as a tool to rebuild relation, fences or r- rather relationships, break down fences with, with, with the Biden uh, administration. But I think in terms of uh, the UK at the Security Council, it's going to be handicapped by the fact that, you know, everybody sees with the ODA cut and the Johnson government's insistence that the way it's going to make up for lost trade with Europe is flogging whatever it can to the rest of the world, that this is going to be a very mercantilist Britain. Uh, And, you know, I'm not sure it's going to be a very trusted voice on international political and security issues. And, you know, I think it increasingly looks like the sort of weakest member of the council. And, you know, it's lucky for Britain that for reasons nothing to do with Britain, there isn't much energy at the moment behind Security Council reform, because I suspect, you know, if there was and if the music stopped, uh, Britain would find it was the country no longer with a seat at the table. Musical chairs on the Security Council. Um, I, w- I want to just, um, for the last couple of minutes, focus on some of the broader and, and longer-term impacts. I mean, of course, we, we already touched upon the uh, fiscal impact of this on uh, Western aid budgets and, and ODA and, and the fact that the UK is probably not going to be alone in, 
in cutting this. But of course, ODA is only one part of the sort of global economic flows that might uh, be be uh, have an impact or be impacted by uh, COVID nineteen. And do you see these as having a a significant impact down the road on some conflict dynamics and and putting pressure uh, both within states or potentially even between states. I do. I mean, I think just to start with the economic picture. I mean, having you know escaped some of the public health impact, I think much of the developing world and indeed the emerging market world is going to have a, what one might call a long economic COVID. That you know, in addition to what you say about ODA. You know, more generally, middle-income countries have had to go into very heavy borrowing over the last year to make up for less lost economic activity. And I think you're going to see a growing number of them with real debt sustainability issues. I think you're already seeing poorer countries with the same, and they have been helped by a debt standstill organized by the World Bank and the IMF, but it's only covered a portion of their debt, the public debt, not the private debt, and not portions of the China debt either. So a lot of difficulties. And if you look at an awful lot of these economies' structure, you see that there are difficulties which are not going to go away very quickly because, you know, quite a large number of them dependent on commodity prices, particularly oil and gas. Well, they are down because of, you know, particularly sort of lower uh, oil usage and increasingly oil markets are being served by the cheapest producers with the lowest cost transport access to consumer markets and that's squeezing particularly the african oil exporters tourism as a global sector way down which is of disproportionate economic benefit to developing countries remittance earnings down because an awful lot of remittance workers have had to go home and are not needed in the gulf or in other uh, areas where they have previously worked and a lot of the sort of retail for export sectors, the garment sector in, say, Bangladesh, or even flowers in Kenya, uh, these are sectors which, you know, depressed consumer spending post-COVID in Western consumer markets is likely to have a real impact on them. So, you know, a lot of bleakness in the medium-term ec- economic forecasts for developing countries, which will, I think, you know, then have knock-on effects of, you know, sharpening patterns of, you know, economic inequality and impoverishment in many countries and inevitably in some places that leading to a degree of political breakdown and exclusion, which may in turn lead to conflict. So, you know, it is, it's not a happy picture looking forward. No, and I think this, this reminds me that even Notwithstanding the, the fact that the pathways to violent conflict are fairly complex and uh, difficult to untangle, there's a, a whole series of what we could call human security impacts, um, both on the freedom from want and the freedom from fear side that go as it may fall short of eruptions into violence, but may still have really quite dramatic uh, effects on the lives and livelihoods of, of tens of millions of people around the world. So that's a bit of a a sobering thought. Um, do you have any sort of hopes uh, or aspirations uh, to end on a less bleak note that, that you might see in the next few years that, that we learn a few lessons from the COVID experience? Well, I think two lessons. I mean, one, you know, hopefully, despite what I've said about domestic politics in many countries, this may trigger a new international engagement and collaboration, a recognition that these 
public goods issues like pandemics or climate change cannot be dealt with at the national only level and require this real international partnership and multilateral collaboration. And I think, secondly, you know, a, I, I really do see in corporate leaders, but public leaders as well, a recognition that we need to build back better from this, to use a well-trodden phrase, that we need a greener future, that we need to invest in a more appropriate infrastructure, not just in terms of carbon emissions, but in terms of wider lifestyles and its in burden, on, burden on the finite resources of our global, global natural resource base and economy. So, you know, I think this could be a moment which we will look back on and say that it was the crisis that frightened the world into sort of waking up and, and, and taking a new direction. Um, the kind of politics that Trump and others have re- reflected in the world and which still means that the majority of world citizens are today governed almost unbelievably by authoritarian or semi-authoritarian systems. You know, that politics may have met its challenge and its Waterloo, if you like, because, you know, we may be at a moment when a kind of liberal consciousness reawakes and recognizes, you know, we have to stand together, that global solidarity for, after all, ultimately a rather small world with a lot of people in it, you know, is the way we can manage our collective destiny and deliver a world fit for our children and grandchildren. Well, that's a, a, a good note to end on. I, I do hope that this is an inflection point and that the wheel uh, will slowly uh, but inevitably turn because it certainly needs to move away from, from some of the current trends. So uh, thank you very much, Mark, for, for joining us for this podcast. And uh, I do wish only that we'd been able to conduct it in person and perhaps we will be able to welcome you to the Graduate Institute at some point uh, in the next couple of years. Thank you, Keith. It was a great pleasure to do it. And greetings to everybody at the Graduate Institute. That was Lord Malloch Brown and Professor Crowther discussing the impact this pandemic has on contemporary conflict dynamics. For more information about the Graduate Institute, please visit graduateinstitute.ch. I'm Lena Menge. Thanks for listening.